Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our Easter series today with a message entitled, The Resurrection and Our Hope. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In Dante's Inferno, there is a sign over the gates of hell. It reads very simply, Abandon hope, all you who enter here. It really is amazing that human beings can go through the worst of times, but they can only do it if they have hope. On the other hand, we can go through the best of times and even commit suicide where there is no hope. Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor, and he was also a philosopher. His most famous work was entitled Man's Search for Meaning. It was his autobiography of his time spent in Auschwitz, probably the worst of all the death camps. He wrote, those who know how close the connection is between the state of mind of a man, his courage and hope, or lack of them, and the state of the immunity of his body, will understand that sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. To that, Frankel gave an illustration. During the Christmas of 1944 to New Year's Day, 1945, the prisoners of Auschwitz had what was a record high rate of death. Frankel argues that the prisoners died because they had expected to be home before Christmas. When they realized this was not to be, he says, they lost hope of life beyond Auschwitz. And the minute they lost hope, they promptly died. Frankel believed that the human body is a lot tougher than we think. And furthermore, he believed that it was possible to suffer through brutal human indignity and survive. But Frankel thought that prisoners who lost faith in the future were doomed. He wrote, the prisoner who lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, so wrote Frankel, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. And so for any human being to survive, we need two things. We need hope and we need meaning. You know, this week as we discuss the meaning of the resurrection, I want to discuss the matter of hope. Yesterday, I argued that the resurrection of Jesus is the objective reality on which the faith stands. The resurrection declares that Jesus really is the Son of God, that what he said is true, and that we as Christians have a ground on which we can stand. But today I want to discuss something that's quite personal, this matter of hope. The word hope comes up frequently in the Bible, and it's especially prominent in the New Testament. The writings of Paul are filled with references to hope. One example is Romans 5, 2-4. You know, there Paul writes that Christians rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is, we're flooded with hope, and, and hope makes the heart glad. Hope drives us forward and, and makes us believe that the future has meaning, that our best days lie ahead. But this is where Romans 5 gets interesting. With this joy that rises out of hope, says Paul, this also makes it possible for us to rejoice in our sufferings. Well, why not? If the basic worldview that I have is a hopeful worldview, well, then it's impossible to view suffering as the end. Indeed, instead of collapsing into despair, Paul says that our sufferings produce endurance, which, of course, is the description of the person who has staying power, person who doesn't give up. Endurance, says Paul, produces character. 
You know, in this case, Paul means good moral character, character that doesn't lapse into poor conduct when things get hard. And then Paul says that moral fiber produces hope. That is, Paul begins with hope and then he ends with hope. And he means to say that no matter what we go through, we approach life in hope and the life of God gives us and produces in us even more hope. Well, that may be fine in theory, but how is it possible to live that out? Well, it is possible. Listen to how Peter begins his first letter. And here I'm reading 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, do you see, this is the same theme that Paul gives us in Romans. But here in 1 Peter, Peter spells it out in even greater detail. The hope that Peter has in mind, indeed, all of the references found to hope in the New Testament, are in relation to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And Peter calls this a living hope through the resurrection. So let's unpack that. See, I think it's helpful here to go to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. There Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Let's start with verse 21. For as by a man came death, Paul's referring to Adam's sin. Adam sinned and consequently, as God had warned him, if he ate of the forbidden fruit, he would die. I don't know how things worked before Adam's sin, but it may be that, that of all God's creatures, only man would live forever. But however things were, we do know that once Adam turned his back on the Creator. He encountered a change in his biological makeup. And not only he, but the entire human race that followed him is now subject to death. We are born and life is given to us as a gift, but at the moment of birth, the seeds of death are already in us. We know we're dying. I I sometimes look at it like a soccer game. Now, soccer, if you don't watch it, is a 90-minute game. At 45, it's halftime. And those of you who are 50 now, well, you're thinking you're middle age. <laughs> Probably not. But then if you watch soccer well, you know that lots of players get switched out before the game ends. You know, it might be the 65-minute mark when you see your number has come up on the sidelines and, and you're out before the 90. And then if you watch the game, you'll know that there's a discretionary extra minutes that a referee can add. So the game might go on to maybe 95 minutes, but very rarely beyond that. The whistle blows, and then the game is over. And you don't know at what point before 90 your number comes up, but you do know that if you make it to 90, the game is almost over. And you also know that you live under that shadow. Hebrews 2 verse 14 speaks of the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and then speaks of those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. See, death haunts us. I know, 
There are people who say they're unafraid of death, and they say they can whistle while walking through a graveyard, and yet, even in the midst of that seeming bravado, there is always that haunting reality that death is certain. For in Adam, says Paul, all die. How does anyone have hope and optimism when we all know that the journey of life ends in a cul-de-sac? How does one have meaning when whatever meaning we create for ourselves always comes to a crashing end? I know many speak of life after death, but the problem for most is that all of that talk is uncertain. It's not a certain hope. How can we say that we know when we've not been there? And when we know that we can't interview the people who have died to find out if their faith was justified. And to that, Paul responds in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's a profound statement. Since the resurrection is a real objective moment in human history, the news of a dead body coming to life and living now in an incorruptible body, no longer subject to death. Well, that's stunning news. In this world where death always has the last word. Here, here is one occasion where death did not have the last word. Well, then we might marvel at that, but we're still left to wonder. You know, it might be that he rose from the dead, but after all, I mean, he is the son of God and he did live a sinless life. And God's favor rested on him unlike any other. So how can I have hope? If in the billions of people who have lived only, only one rose bodily, where's my hope in that? Well, the answer to that is found in verse 20. Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And there in that one verse is the reason for all Christian hope. Here's why we never think of our lives ending in a cul-de-sac. Here is why Christians who have drunk deeply from this well never despair. Where's our hope grounded? Paul says it's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. And in order to understand this, we need to know that all of this depends on that one word, first fruits. So much to know about that one word. It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfield, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board. The idea of first fruits comes to us from the First Testament. It begins with the idea that God is the creator of everything and consequently, everything that exists is his by right of ownership. Psalm 24 verse one says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. 
And then building on that theme, the Bible instructs believers to give an offering to God. I mean, after all, everything they thought they had and everything they claimed was theirs, well, it was never theirs in the first place. Instead, they were only using what God owned. But God's not lacking in generosity. He's graciously allowing his creatures to use that which belongs to him. But, and this is the key to the idea of first fruits, we need to respond to God's generosity. And so, uh, the offering called the first fruit is intended as a statement of thanks. It's, it's gratefulness to God for his generosity to us. There are a number of reasons why this offering was called a first fruit. So, we might notice that this offering was to be given first rather than at the last. And the point behind this is that you're not to wait to see whether or not you're going to have enough upon which you can live before you give your offering. Rather, you give your offering at the first. It's an act of faith. If what I have comes from the fullness of God, who, who allows his creatures out of you know, his abundant generosity to use his stuff, then my offering represents my confidence that what follows after I give my offering is that there will be enough. It's really an act of faith. I give before I have everything I need. But then everything I need always did come from God, and I know that he's generous. And so as an act of faith and as a representation of all that was given to me, knowing that God's generosity can't fail, I give from the very first I have, waiting for God to continue to be generous to me in the future. That's the essence of the idea of a first fruit offering. But there is something else equally important about a first fruit offering. A first fruit offering represents the very best of what you had. It was never an offering of what's left over, that portion that you weren't going to use anyway. No, no. A first fruit offering represented the very best you had. And so what was included in this offering? Well, listen to Exodus 23, verse 16. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruit of your labor of what you sow in the field. So then, as your harvest begins to ripen, the very first of the crops are brought into the tabernacle or later the temple, and they are presented to God. And that included the wheat harvest. It included the olive oil, the new wine, honey, sheep, wool, fruit, anything. And just as an aside, in Deuteronomy 26, there are some detailed instructions about what Israel was to do when they first came into the promised land. So listen to verses 1 to 4. When you come into the land, the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and you take possession of it and live in it. You shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. <laughs> I've got a memory here, and I've got to share this. It comes from my own pastoral ministry. I remember a young man. He had just finished his Ph.D. from Simon Fraser University, and he just landed his first job. He came to me and said, you know, I've been reading Deuteronomy 26, and I've just received my first paycheck for my job. 
I'd like to take my paycheck and put it in a basket, and I want to lay it before the altar. It's my first fruit offering because I believe that God will provide a lot of paychecks in my future. And that exactly captures the spirit of the whole thing. Now, says Paul, that exactly is what the resurrection of Jesus is. He is the first fruit offering presented to God. Now, just think about it. You know, first, Christ was offered on the altar. Then he was raised from the dead, and he is the very first of a great harvest that God will yet provide. Now, if he was only raised from the dead, he would not yet be a first fruit. But by calling him a first fruit, it's got to mean that his resurrection is the beginning of a harvest, a great harvest of resurrected bodies that are yet to be brought in. And the second issue is that Christ is not just one resurrection, but that he is the very best of all of the resurrections. The best of what? Well, we do know that Jesus, even while he was always fully God, took upon himself the nature of a man. And as one who became fully man, he is the very best of the human race. Just like the Old Testament animals that were brought to the altar, Jesus is without blemish, the very best of what could be offered before the Lord. But we also know that just like when Israel entered the promised land and a new era was upon them, so also the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of a new era. And this era is the era of a harvest of bodily resurrections from the dead. And so in order to celebrate that which is coming, Jesus is presented at the beginning of the harvest as the model of what will come after him. This then is the hope of the believer in Jesus. We don't just believe in life after death. I mean, if that's all that we believe, we would not be unlike the great majority of the human race throughout history. Instead, we believe that as Job said so eloquently when he was languishing with illness that made him suffer horribly, he said, and I'm reading here from Job 19, 25 to 26, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he shall stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. No, no. He didn't say, I'm going to see God, or I'm going to be be going to heaven and see God. He said, when my body is laid in the ground and when worms have done their best and have consumed me, I know with absolute certainty that in my flesh, that is in my body, I will see God. See, the hope of the believer is that we will be raised like Jesus was raised. And when I discuss this matter, let me deal with a question that that believers sometimes have. You know, will my body look like the one I now have? You know, if I die at 33, am I going to look young and vigorous? And, you know, if I die at 97, am I going to look old and wrinkled for all of eternity? See, one interesting feature of that question is found in John 20, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See, we know that Jesus still had the nail marks and the marks of the spear when he was raised from the dead. And so, you know, some of us ask, well, will I have the same scars that I've gained over my years? How about that birthmark that's on my back? Or how about that crooked nose that I still have from that accident? You know, that kind of stuff. And others will say, you know, I hope I'm not going to be overweight in heaven. And I hope I'm going to look better than I do now. And all that leads to some to ask, will we even recognize each other? How are we to think about the resurrection of our bodies? Well, please remember 
that the wounds of Jesus, that is, the wounds from his crucifixion, those wounds are unique to Jesus. Those wounds remain, for they will be, for all believers, a a constant reminder of how much our Savior has loved us. We will glory in the wounds of Jesus. So, remember that Jesus will live eternally in a human body, just as we shall. But as we remember these things, please also remember the words that come to us from 1 Corinthians 15, 42-43. It says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. See, whatever it is in your present form that reflects dishonor or weakness or that which is perishable, well, all that's going to be taken away. There will be no marks of present-day weakness. So, So don't worry. I have no doubt You'll have to take a second look at the men and women you have loved whom you now see in heaven. Is that really dad or mom? Uncle Rudy, I've never seen you look so good. I mean, all that to say, you also, when you gaze at your own reflection, will marvel that it really is the self-same you, but you will also marvel that you've never looked so good. But let me return to this matter of hope. If you, my Christian brother and my Christian sister, really drink deeply of this hope, if you constantly nurture this as your future, if you resolutely refuse to despair, and if you gaze on the resurrection of Jesus, then marvel. This is your hope. This is why you can suffer so much that it would devastate anyone else, but you never lose hope. You are living in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. John, thanks again for your message. Let me ask you a quick question, though. You know, is it possible to be a Christian and and feel hopeless? Yes, it is, Ben. Of course it is. But I don't think it's possible to be a Christian and to remain hopeless. I mean, you know, the question is, is this for a moment or is this a way of life? And I would argue that, yes, because of our flesh, because we are born into sin, because of all manner of human weakness, it is a normal thing for individuals to fall into times of despair, uh, discouragement. All of these things are a part of life. And, you know, read through the Bible characters and everyone seems to have experienced these things. So it's not as if something unusual were happening happening to us. But I think we would also say that, uh, you know, David encouraged himself in the Lord, says the Psalms. Um, We know also that uh, we can continue to encourage our soul to hope in the Lord. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us here again tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. In the month of June, Dr. Newfeld and a team from Back to the Bible Canada will be traveling to India to join the ministry team of Back to the Bible India to conduct two Bible teaching conferences in both Delhi and Hyderabad. These conferences will attract hundreds of pastors from these regions from multiple denominations in search of excellence in the instruction of expositional Bible teaching and to spend time in worship, fellowship, and offer encouragement amidst challenging and difficult circumstances of ministry. Perhaps this is a ministry venture you'd want to invest in. 
Your gift towards Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries would mean so much in support of this conference, the development and encouragement of pastors in these regions, and the airing of ongoing Bible teaching programs in Asia. To offer your support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.